very much. Appreciate that, worship team. If you would turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We want to continue working our way through the book of Acts, and we want to hear what the Lord would say to us through his word. He does speak, and he speaks through his word to us, and he wants to encourage us this morning. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about this week is that uh, there is so much bad news all around us in various ways. Our own sin is bad news. Uh, The sin of others around us is bad news. Uh, The sin of um, our government and other governments is bad news. And yet the Bible in various ways encourages us to rejoice always. And how is that? It's because there's good news to rejoice about. And the good news that I just want to remind us of is on the right side there. Obviously, these are just, uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but when we think about the God who created us, uh, he's a good God, and he created us to be holy and happy because that's how he is. He is perfectly holy, he is perfectly happy, and he created us that he might bring us into his holiness And his happiness. But happiness doesn't come apart from holiness. And that's the problem. The bad news is we're sinners. We're not holy. And therefore, uh, we're naturally uh, born separated from God. And that brings us to the second point of good news is that God hasn't left us without a solution, without a resolution for our sin issue. He's provided his son, Jesus. And Jesus is truly an able and willing Savior for sinners. That's why he came. He came to accomplish what had to be accomplished, that he might be an able savior, and he has a heart to save. And he calls to us and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, but there's bad news. The bad news is uh, we naturally love sin. Uh, We naturally, in some real sense, hate God. And we like being on our own. We like being independent of God. We want to be our own little gods. And we will never come to God on our own. That brings us to the third point of good news. The Spirit is at work to enable sinners to trust and love. The Holy Spirit is at work to raise us from the spiritually dead and to enable us to trust that God is truly good and wants to make us holy and happy and that Jesus is everything we need to be reconciled to God. And even as believers, the good news is the Holy Spirit's at work in our lives to enable us to trust God and to love people in greater, deeper, richer ways. And so when we come to the the Bible, we want to come approaching it with a foundation of good news, Um, knowing that God the Father's good, Jesus is good, the Holy Spirit's good, and they're at work doing awesome and wonderful things in the lives of people and certainly awesome and wonderful things in our own lives as his children. And so let's read uh, Acts chapter 8 together in light of that. And hopefully as we go through it this morning, we'll be reminded of the gospel in various ways. Oh, thank you. Still haven't got used to this uh, flexible mic here. I'm not sure where it needs to be. Okay, all right, thank you. All right, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is at the end of the stoning of Stephen. 
And um, we have a sentence at the very beginning that relates closely to what was happening in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning and the death of the first martyr, Stephen. And it begins by saying, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, speaking of Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, He continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion Uh, In this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart uh, may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, They started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, 
Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For he, his life, is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, in some of your translations, you will not have verse 37. Uh, in the New American Standard, it says, And Philip said, I believe with all, excuse me, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Exodus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Father, we just pray for your grace. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see. Please apply the word to our hearts that we too might go from this place rejoicing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, what we see in this uh, long chapter is in verses 1 through 3, we see what we might call waves of persecution. The reason why I call it a wave of persecution is because there are already things happening even before Acts chapter 8 where the disciples were beginning to be challenged and even uh, persecuted. But this is a great wave of persecution that's coming upon the church, and it resulted from the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen does the right thing, and a wave of persecution follows. And this persecution is led by Saul, who actually in chapter 9 will become Paul. Um, And so as a result of this great persecution, you have the scattering of the church or the dispersion of the church. Then in the following verses, verses 4 through 25, uh, we have the what we might call the result of the dispersion. The people are dispersed, the believers are dispersed into new fields of ministry. And so you have the ministry of Philip in Samaria, which includes the baptism of Simon the magician. You have Peter and John who come down, and they're ministering in Samaria too, and that results in the rebuke of Simon the magician. And then, in the last part of the chapter, we have what I'm calling the treasure of transformation in verses 26 through 40, where you have Philip who is sent to meet this Ethiopian eunuch who's uh, on his way back home uh, from Jerusalem, and Philip uh, joins him in reading the Bible and he is uh, baptized, he's saved and baptized. Then Philip is snatched away by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 9, we see the transformation of Paul as well. And so what I'd like to do this morning, I'd like to just encourage us to trust the Lord in certain ways in light of what this passage highlights for us and to think about 
how we love in various ways in light of this passage as well. And the first thing is that I want to encourage you and myself to trust God with the waves of trouble, okay? All of us have waves of trouble. And when I use the term waves, I mean uh, all of our troubles aren't always at the same intensity. The persecution of the church wasn't at the same intensity all the time. This in Acts chapter 8 was a great, a mega persecution. There was persecution before, but this is a mega persecution. This is a great wave of persecution. And so there's an ebb and flow in our lives of trouble and trials and difficulties. And sometimes it's great. And sometimes the waters are receding. You can be going into a trial in the midst of a great trial, coming out of a trial. All kinds of things are happening in our lives and we find ourselves in different places at different times. But regardless of where we find ourselves with regard to trouble, whether it's persecution or just other kinds of trials, we need to trust that God is simply keeping his promises to us. And what I mean by that, first of all, is not only is he keeping his promise to work everything together for good, but he's keeping his promise to send us trials. Uh, If you recall, in John 16, it says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, or you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. And so there's a real sense in which God has promised us waves of trouble. It won't always be great, but there will be times of great trouble. And so God is not failing to keep his promises when trials come, because he told us trials are going to come. It says in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not a strange thing if God's promised that it's going to come. And if Jesus said, um, there are going to be difficult times of all kinds. One of those will be persecution, waves of persecution. John could even say in 1 John 3, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised if the world is against you, if the world hates you, if the world doesn't like your stand on pronouns and those kinds of things. Don't be surprised if the world is against that kind of thing. But one of the interesting things to me is uh, chapter 8 in light of chapter 7. In chapter 7, Stephen does the right thing. He does the loving thing. He tells the truth. He speaks the truth in love, and they kill him. And as a result of him speaking the truth in love, there's a great persecution that comes upon the church. And one of the things that's really hard for us that Peter talks about in 1 Peter is the reality is that... um, Just because you do the right thing and love doesn't mean people are going to always respond well. And so um, the Bible encourages us to do the right thing even when we suffer for it. That's what Peter talks about is don't be afraid or reluctant to do the right thing even if you know it may bring greater suffering. One of the interesting things in uh, the book of Exodus with the Israelites being rescued from Uh, Egypt is that God sends Moses and Aaron and he tells them to tell Pharaoh to let the people go and if you read Exodus chapter 5 what happens 
Things get worse before they get better. Uh, Pharaoh says, okay, if you guys are so intent on thinking about other things like worshiping your God, you're not focusing on your work, I'm going to do something that's going to make you focus on your work. I'm going to take away all the straw, and you'll have to find your own straw and make bricks, and you will have to still meet your quota. And they get beaten, and they get punished because they're not able to make their quotas. And they go to Moses, the Israelites go to Moses and Aaron, and they say, what are you guys doing? You're making things worse, not better. And even Moses goes to God and says, God, you sent me here to deliver your people, and you haven't even begun to deliver them. Things are getting worse, not better. And so that's what's happening here in the book of Acts. Uh, Stephen uh, spoke the truth in love, and things got worse, not better. And so... We have to just remember that reality is that just because we as Christians love doesn't mean it's going to be received well by the world. There's actually a letter that was written in the second century AD in which this gentleman is talking to another person and he's talking about Christians and he says, among other things, they live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chance has put them. They live in their own native lands but as aliens. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and behave respectfully to others. Excuse me. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. Excuse me. Interestingly enough, he would say Christians at that time were being sorely persecuted and yet those who were persecuting them could not give any, certainly any good reason for doing so. And that's why Jesus said, do not be surprised if they hate you because they hated me. That there's, There are things going on behind the scenes. It's about hatred ultimately toward God and Jesus. It's not simply about what we do or what we don't do. Um, and so we've got this situation where there, there are waves of trouble that come our way, waves of persecution that hit the church at various times and in various seasons. And sometimes you might feel like um, the song that Kansas sang way back in 1977, I think it was, uh, Dust in the Wind. And the picture of Dust in the Wind is the picture of just being blown around. Uh, I think the, the idea of the song is all, all, that are, it's, all that's going on in our lives, all that we might achieve is ultimately going to just be blown away. But it's certainly picturing the idea that not only is it going to be blown away and kind of futile, it's kind of the Ecclesiastes idea of um, nothing um, is going to last and is it really for anything is the kind of the idea of the song. But it pictures the idea of just being dust, we're all made from the dust, just being blown around in a, in a fashion that has no meaning. And the important thing about Acts chapter 8 is and thinking about the waves of persecution is realizing that waves carry things and people in certain directions. If you're on on a raft 
in the ocean, uh, the waves and the current of the ocean are going to take you places. And the question is, uh, the circumstances in our lives that are like waves and that carry us different places, is that like a dust in the wind and that song that it's ultimately meaningless? Or is there a real important meaning to how the waves are carrying us certain places? And I believe it's definitely uh, the latter. And I think we can see that in light of what uh, happens in the rest of the chapter. And so if you look at uh, verses 4 through 25, it talks about uh, what happened as a result of um, the waves of persecution that carried people away from Jerusalem. And one in particular is Philip. And it talks about what happened and what uh, uh, he did and how he ministered uh, in that time. It talks about how he goes to Samaria and he begins healing people and delivering them from demons. And he preaches the gospel and they get saved and baptized. And that was something that happened as a result of the suffering that was going on in Jerusalem, the wave of persecution, um, which is just a reminder that um, who's ultimately behind this persecution? Based on um, Revelation chapter 12, it's the dragon. The dragon's behind the persecution. Who's the dragon? Satan, the devil. He's the one who's ultimately uh, behind this persecution. It's not just Saul. Saul is one of the instruments, but the dragon or the devil is behind the persecution, and he has a real purpose in it. He's out to destroy the people of God. But God's purpose is also involved, and it's even ruling and reigning over Satan's purposes and even Saul's purposes in all of this. And that's the encouraging thing is that there are evil um, purposes going on in our country. There are people who are really pursuing evil things, and and yet God is sovereign over that, and he's pursuing good things even through their evil intents. He does that through Satan. He does that through people just like we see with Saul. And so what happens is we see God spreading the gospel by spreading Christians. That's how the gospel is spreading, is God is spreading Christians. He's moving Christians into new fields of ministry. And so, uh, you know, when we think about missions, we think about going someplace. When we think about missions, we ought to think also about being taken someplace. Okay? God is doing things in your life, and as a result of that, you have contact with people that you did not have contact with before. Whether it's health issues, whether it's job issues, whether it's uh, relational issues, uh, the waves of suffering, the waves of whatever it might be, cause you to have connections with people that you did not have before. And the challenging thing for us is to actually see it as a mission field, to see it as an opportunity to be a light for the gospel in a new place. And so that's what's happening here in this um, whole situation. Uh, Back in August of 2016, there was what they called a historic flood in my, where I grew up in Louisiana. They call it a 500-year flood, uh, where uh, my mom's house 
about six feet of water in it, and uh, places flooded that had never been flooded before, and uh, 13 people died. Between 50 and 75,000 houses were affected. It was a huge issue. And the initial thing that happened with the flood was my mom was displaced. <laughs> a lot of people were displaced. They were, they were scattered into different places. But the other thing that happened is that um, people were brought into fields of ministry. There were 20 people from Mississippi that came and helped uh, to gut my mother's house. So there was a sense in which the wave of the flood brought people in that would not have been there otherwise and loved in ways that they would not have loved otherwise. It was actually the tragedy that brought people in to a new field of ministry where they, they could love in new ways. And so it's always a great question to ask myself, what have the waves of my trials um, where, where have they brought me? You know, what field of ministry am I now in that waves of trials have brought me into in some way, shape, or form? And am I seeing it as a mission field? Am I seeing it as an opportunity to be a light and to share the gospel and to love like Christ loves? Uh, so many times in our trials, we just see it as something we want to escape from rather than seeing it as something that's carrying us into a place where we can actually trust and love in new ways. So that's a huge thing that's going on here in this chapter with with Philip and the Samaritans and all that's taking place here with Peter and John coming in. But then it moves on because Philip doesn't stay in Samaria. He's actually directed um, to... Uh, go someplace else. And so the third thing that I just want to highlight is not only do we want to trust God that he's keeping his promises to us when he sends waves of trouble, we need to secondly trust God for the fields of ministry that he's bringing us into or has brought us into, that there's a good reason why he has us where we are. I mean, it's just like um, those like James. You know, James requested prayer that he could be a light uh, to people in the medical field. That's just one illustration of how um, our circumstances carry us into realms that we wouldn't choose to go to on our own. But they're a great opportunity for us to uh, ask God to do just that. Lord, help me to be a light where I am. Even though I would not have chosen to be in this field of ministry, I would not have chosen to leave Jerusalem, Uh, But now that I'm in Samaria, you know, uh, help me to take advantage of that for your glory. So we were to trust God both for the trial, the field of ministry, and then finally to trust God that the waves are meant to not only bring us into a field of ministry, but to also transform lives. That that's God's ultimate purpose in sending the persecution. That's God's ultimate purpose in sending the trial is to transform our lives as well as the lives of others, that God has a good purpose in it. And so that's what we see happening with the eunuch. We see um, Philip showing up beside the chariot, and in that day and time, people most often read out loud. Uh, For one thing, um, reading silently was actually mentally difficult, and it was actually easier to understand the text if you read it out loud. 
And so that's why he knew uh, that he was reading from the book of Isaiah because he was riding along in his, his uh, um, whatever it was, chariot or whatever it was. And um, he was reading the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And Philip comes up and hears what he's reading and asks the question, do you understand what you're reading? And as a result, he preaches Jesus from that place in the Bible because all of scripture ultimately points back to Jesus. And the, the man asks the question, who is the writer talking about here? Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And um, Philip says, he's talking about Jesus. Um, That's what Jesus did. He lived the life you could never live. He died the death you deserve to die, and he rose from the dead. And he came and he gave his life like a lamb prepared for the slaughter. Uh, because that's what we deserve, but he took it in our place that we might be saved. And so we don't know all that Philip said, but he just said something like that. And obviously uh, the eunuch believes and he's baptized. Um, the interesting thing to me is that um, when the flood hit, my mom tried to get out. And so she drove away from her house and she took a wrong turn. If she had gone left coming out of her um, housing track, she would have been fine. She turned right instead and drove right into the deep water. And her car stalled, and she had to wade through the water and go to a gas station. And the water kept rising to the point where she and about, I don't know if maybe 50 other people were stranded there for hours upon hours, just water all around them, until someone in a uh, a boat could come up and rescue them. And so you could say that the the waves of trouble that she was in or the floodwaters she was in uh, created the need for rescue. In terms of how I'm talking about it here, I would say it actually exposed the need for rescue. That's the spiritual application, is that um, for my mom, it created the need for rescue. For the... For uh, the eunuch, it exposed his need for rescue. He, he was able to see through the preaching of Philip that there was a savior for sinners. And that savior was Jesus. And he realized that he needed to be rescued and he trusted and believed. Um, you know, one of the, a great question to ask ourselves when we're going through trials is, um, what would it take for me to think this trial is worth it? What would it take for me to think this trial is worth it? Uh, Would it be my own salvation? Would it be the salvation of someone in my family? Would it be the salvation of someone I don't even know? Would it be uh, the transformation of my life in certain ways, the transformation of my family in certain ways, the transformation of other people in certain ways? Um, would the waves of persecution, the waves of trials actually be something we would thank God for if we knew that it was the treasure of persecution? Uh, treasure, not the, well, treasure in a sense, but the treasure of transformation that was going to come out of it. So the chapter is rich if you just think about how it flows. And now it starts out with persecution, it starts out with trouble, 
but it results in people in new fields of ministry, and it results in transformation. And it moves right into Acts chapter 9, which is the transformation of Saul into Paul, which actually, which actually is another part of how the waves of persecution actually brought him to Christ, even though he didn't want that at all. Um, which brings me to my fourth point with regard to love. There, this chapter calls us to trust God in certain ways, to trust that he's keeping his promises in the waves of trouble that we see, to trust that those waves of trouble are meant to move us into fields of ministry, and they're meant to uh, result in transformation of lives. But we also need to think about what this speaks to with regard to our love, because when I talk about Saul, Saul didn't start out well. Saul starts out uh, being in favor of murdering Stephen. He starts out by throwing Christians in jail. And the idea of jail back then wasn't to keep them in jail for you know, the rest of their lives. It was to keep them in jail until they could decide whether or not they were going to flog them or kill them, basically. What are we going to do with these people? And most of the time, uh, that was what it was really all about. And that's what uh, Saul, at that point, wanted, was the Christians to be punished and uh, hopefully killed. Just eradicate this cancer from Judaism. That's what he wanted. The interesting thing is um, that it's instructive in terms of thinking about how in our own lives that we can be confident, we can be passionate, we can be sincere, and we can be wrong. We can be confident, passionate, sincere, and wrong. Now, why is that important to to know? Because that's where Saul was. Saul thought he was doing what he was doing for God's sake. He thought he was doing what is was what was best for the people of God, other Israelites. There's no doubt that he was confident that he was doing what needed to be done in condemning the people he was condemning. That's why on the road to Damascus, you get into Acts chapter 9, um, he's blinded by the light, and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And it says he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, did he not eat or drink because he couldn't find anything to eat or drink? He was blind? No. He was in shock. He had to think about what he had been doing. He thought he had been loving God and loving people. He would have argued that. But he was terribly wrong. And that's why it is so important for us to listen to God and listen to his word and pray, God, help me to see if I'm not seeing. Help me to see how I'm relating to people. Help me to see how I'm, um, whether or not I'm really trusting you like I should. Help me to see whether or not I'm really loving people as I should. Uh, deliver me from entertaining the idea automatically that, that simply because I'm confident and passionate that I must be right. Um, That's the way Saul was, and God had to deliver him, and he did. It's just just a matter of humility. 
humility is so important for us in order to be able to um, love people. God gives grace to the humble. And a humble person, if we're humble, will say, um, God, I want to love. Am I blind to anything? Am I convinced of something that's really wrong about myself, about the other person, about the situation? Help me. And sometimes God gives us those Damascus Road experiences of sorts where we begin to see things and realize, wow, I just totally had that wrong. Thank you, Lord, for helping me to see. Well, the fifth point is that another issue of love is that we can see from this text is affirming a person's profession of faith until something calls it into question. It's fascinating to me that when Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria, people believe and they're baptized. And even Simon the magician, it says, believed and was baptized. And nobody said, wait a minute, Simon. You can't be baptized. You're not a believer. But if you read closely what Peter says in rebuking Simon, you, you realize that Peter is saying, you haven't truly trusted Christ. You haven't been transformed. Your heart is still wrong toward God. And yet, that wasn't seen initially. It came out at some point. But I think the point I want to make is, um, the Lord. it says about the Lord Jesus in, the, in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Which is the idea we seek to affirm people in every way we can when they're exhibiting any kind of faith in Jesus and any desire to follow him. Now, maybe it will come out later on that they weren't really trusting Jesus and weren't really desiring to follow him. But sometimes I think we can be so concerned about um, making sure we don't affirm someone who's not really a Christian that we don't affirm them as we should because we're trying to read their heart, we're trying to read their motives rather than looking at what they say and what they're willing to do. And so it's just a reminder to me that um, it wasn't Philip's job to know for sure whether or not someone was a believer. It was to listen to what they said and to listen to what they were willing to do and to go from there. And that's how we have to deal with one another as well because the reality is um, it's only by uh, what people say and do that we can even have an idea of what is going on in their heart. And I think that's the idea behind Jonathan Edwards when he talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, his message is, uh, think the best of someone until you have good reason to think the negative. And so Simon was baptized. But when it became apparent that his heart wasn't right, uh, Peter spoke to it. And so it's helpful in loving people, I think, if we think about that dynamic. The sixth point is love embraces the goal of being better rather than being free. And what I mean by that is um, Philip could have said, Lord, I don't want to live outside of Jerusalem. I don't want to go to Samaria. I don't want to go to a desert road. Um, I want to be comfortable where I am. 
in order for him to love, he had to be willing to um, be better rather than free. And what I mean by free is free from suffering, free from difficulty, free from change. Um, But to want to love better, to want to be more involved in the lives of people, to want to see people come to Christ. And so that's why Peter could say in 1 Peter 4, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So you see what he says? He says, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. What purpose? The purpose of suffering for the good of others. Christ suffered in the flesh. For whose sake? For our sake. And Peter says, arm yourselves that same attitude, that you're willing to embrace suffering for the sake of glorifying God and bringing good to others. And so if my only prayer in my trials is, Lord, get me out of this, then I'm coming up short with regard to why God has me in the trial in the first place. He has me in the trial to move me into new fields of ministry. He has me in the trial so that I can be used in some way to bring about the transformation of other people's lives. And I need to pray for my own transformation, but that God would use me to transform other people too. So it's not just, Lord, deliver me from this, but deliver me through this. Deliver me from my own selfishness. Deliver me from my own wanting to stay in Jerusalem and give me a heart uh, to love like you love even while I suffer. Um, There uh, was a believer in Budapest uh, while it was being controlled by the communists, which I guess it still is, um, during a time of persecution. And they asked him about what were the effects of persecution And he said, it's like the deep, fast-flowing Danube River. The banks of the river were artificially narrowed throughout the city of Budapest. As a result, the river's fast waters dug deeper and deeper into the river bottom. So there's a real sense in which God wants to take us deeper. He narrows our lives through trials so that we can go deeper with him and so that we'll actually be used in other people's lives as well because it's meant to not only encourage us to pray that we would be different, but that we would also be fruitful. Uh, There's someone who said, I do not pray for a lighter load, but for a stronger back. I don't pray, Lord, just take away all my trials. I pray, Lord, help me to be stronger, stronger in my trust for you, stronger in my love for people, in light of where you've brought me. And then the the last point is, love by rejoicing in the reality that you have all you need and desire in the gift of God. And that gift of God is God himself. The interesting thing about the incident with Simon and Peter is that Simon, the magician, says, hey, I'll pay for that uh, power to lay my hands on people and and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. I'll I'll give you money for that. And Peter says, uh, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could buy or earn the gift of God with money. The gift of God. What was the gift of God? The gift of God was the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. That you could buy God 
with your money. The point is, the gift of God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And so when Peter said, I may your, your attitude be condemned that you thought you could somehow earn God. The point I want to make here is that I want to connect it to the last part of the chapter because uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was the treasurer of Candace. And the reality is the treasurer of Candace on his way back home found the true treasure. The true treasure is God in the person of Jesus. The treasurer found the treasure It says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Says the psalmist says, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. doesn't mean I don't have any other desires. It just means you're my most important desire. Relatively speaking, if I have you, I have everything I need. But he also says, the nearness of God is my good. If that is really true, then what Charles Spurgeon says is important. He says, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages, that bring me nearer to God, who is my good, who satisfies me, who gives me peace, who gives me joy, who meets all my needs, who meets the longings of my soul. And so the waves of persecution, the waves of trial, the waves of trouble are meant to bring us into new fields of ministry, they're meant to transform lives, and that life also those lives include our own lives, are to be transformed so that we find God to be truly everything He promised to be. We find out more and more of the treasure that we have. It's like being carried uh, by floodwaters into the various houses of various rooms of your house, and you're exploring and you see the treasures that are there. God sends waves of trouble, and he sends those waves to cast us against himself, cast us against the rock of ages, and to use us to lead other people to the rock of ages. That's why he sends those waves. So my question as I wrap up this morning is simply to ask, um, in light of the fact that we've talked about trust and love, how do you need to trust God? What's going on in your life? What trials are in your life? Um, How do you need to trust God in light of those trials? And secondly, how do you need to love the people uh, that are all around you uh, at this time in your life? Wherever those waves of circumstance, trials have brought you, how does God call you to love in those situations? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are truly good. You truly do love us. And that you are keeping your promises to us. 
with whatever waves of trial, of tribulation, of uh, trouble, of persecution may come our way. They ebb and flow. It's not always the same, but regardless of whether they're small or great, whether or not they're standard fare or surprising, even though Satan designs them for evil purposes, men design them for evil purposes, you design them for good. And you design them to bring us into new fields of ministry. You design them to transform people's lives around us. And you design them to transform our own lives, to bring us deeper and deeper into fellowship with you and to cast us in fresh and new ways upon the rock of ages. Father, I pray that that good news of what you're up to in persecution in trials, in tribulation, indeed in all of our circumstances, I pray that that good news would fuel greater trust and greater love in our lives this week. Please meet us and help us to see what we need to see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. In a moment we will